This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Election integrity is now law in the state of Texas. Before Texas Governor Greg Abbott had even signed the controversial law restricting voting, lawsuits had been filed challenging it. I feel extremely confident uh, that when this law makes it through the litigation phase, it will be upheld in a court of law because exactly what we've said. It does make it easier for people to be able to go vote. But at least five lawsuits that have been filed in federal court disagree, targeting the law in a variety of ways and arguing that the new restrictions negatively impact the ability of people of color, the elderly, and the disabled to cast their ballots. Joining me is elections law expert Richard Buffalt, a professor at Columbia Law School. Rich, tell us about some of the main provisions of the law. So this is a law adopted after extensive fighting in the state legislature, including a boycott by the Democrats, that basically makes voting harder in Texas in a number of ways. One or two ways it actually liberalizes a few things in terms of early voting in rural areas, but mostly it makes it harder. It increases the requirements for obtaining an absentee ballot, and especially it puts limitations on local elections officials who were trying to make voting easier. In some ways, that's some of the most striking things about it, is stripping local officials of the ability to do some of the things that some of them did last time, like the Harris County, which is Houston. They had lots of drop boxes, 24-hour voting used mobile voting, you know, they used vans or buses to go around the city. The Harris County clerk wanted to send out absentee ballot applications to every registered voter. All of these things that they either did or tried to do would now be prohibited, and there would be penalties, in some cases criminal penalties, either for the clerk personally or for the county in terms of fines and the possibility of removal of local election officials who go beyond the law and make voting easier in ways that the law now prohibits. So some of it is making it harder for individuals to vote. A lot of it is targeted on local officials who are trying to make it easier to vote. One of the provisions that struck me is the poll watching provision, because that could lead to voter intimidation. Right. That's another feature of the law. And actually, Texas is not alone in this. A number of states have adopted laws designed to strengthen the ability of poll watchers. Poll watchers are people, not public officials, people designated by their parties or by other interest groups to be at the polling place. Sometimes they're also at the separate places where the ballots are counted to observe. But this one basically strengthens the ability to sort of observe everything and provides for penalties, criminal penalties on the part of election officials if they in any way interfere with the ability of poll watchers to observe. And of course, not all poll watchers are well-trained. Not all poll watchers may be acting in good faith. And this could be the basis for voter intimidation or just disruption of the voting process. It, It greatly reduces the ability of election officials to manage the polling places in a way that makes it safe and effective for voters by really empowering what are often political people who are there at the polling place to intrude more deeply into both the voting process and later the ballot counting process. There are at least five federal lawsuits now, and they seem to cover the gamut, arguing the law violates the Voting Rights Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Civil Rights Act, and the first 14th and 15th Amendments. So considered together, they cover a lot of legal ground. Well, a number of them on the ADA is the law puts in a lot of restrictions on the ability of people to receive assistance when they're voting. And many of those may bump up against rights that 
voters with disabilities have under the ADA to receive assistance when they're voting. And so I think one big strand is that. Another is, particularly dealing with voting by mail, the law includes many more requirements of what you have to put in or include with your application for an early voting or vote by mail ballot that may disproportionately burden minority voters, younger voters, voters with a disability, language minority voters in particular, who are protected by the Voting Rights Act. So there is an argument, I think, that these new requirements are going to burden a lot of voters and make it harder for many people to vote. The Supreme Court weakened the Voting Rights Act earlier this year. Will that impact these cases? I think it's going to make them harder. It may have less of an impact on the cases brought on behalf of voters with disabilities, because that's a whole different statute, and that has different requirements. I mean, there'll be back questions about just how much is this a burden on voters with disabilities, how much will make it harder for them to vote. But I think on the others, the burden is going to be higher now on the plaintiffs to show that it's going to affect a lot of voters, that these burdens really make it hard to vote and that the state's justifications are really thin. The reasoning of the Supreme Court opinion last time was a lot of these restrictions may hit voters of color more than whites, but they don't affect a lot of voters. So one big thing that the plaintiffs are going to have to show is that these actually could affect a lot of voters. The second thing that they're going to have to show is that the justification for this is pretty thin. The Supreme Court seemed to be willing to accept fraud or ballot integrity at face value. So I think that the burden is going to be harder on the plaintiffs for that. So it sounds like an uphill battle. I think it is an uphill battle. And there are also some arguments under the Texas Constitution and other things. But I think that one of the consequences of the Supreme Court decision is that these cases are going to be harder to bring. They're not out of the question, but they are going to be harder to bring. I mean, the Supreme Court, that case didn't literally rule on a lot of the issues that the plaintiffs are going to raise. That case really dealt with two very specific points. A lot of the issues that the plaintiffs are going to raise here deal with entirely different changes to the voting system ones that have potentially much greater impact. So I I don't think it's over, but I do think the burden's going to be higher. Is it possible that Texas could be subject once again to preclearance requirements under the Voting Rights Act if evidence is developed that Texas Republicans are systematically discriminating against people of color? And preclearance would require Texas to get federal approval before making any changes to voting. I mean, I think it's theoretically possible. So the Supreme Court struck down the provision of the law that said that certain states and counties were automatically subject to preclearance based on voting laws and voting practices of a while ago. That part's gone. But there is still a provision of the law that says that if you engage in serious voting rights violations now, a court, as part of its remedy, could put you under preclearance for a period of time. And that's the idea. That's the so-called bail-in, as a contrast of bail-out. As a remedy for a proven serious violation, you could be subject to preclearance going forward. That's still the law. So that would be a possibility. It hasn't been done much. And it certainly hasn't been done much lately. But that law is on the books. And if a court were to conclude that these are serious violations and maybe that Texas has often committed serious voting rights violations, then I think it's possible. Two controversial laws brought Texas into the national spotlight this week, this voting law and the abortion law. And the same Republican state senator was the main author of both bills. What does that tell you, if anything? Well, it sounds like he's an activist. I mean, I don't know anything about him, but it sounds like it's consistent with somebody viewing these things, that these are both really ideologically motivated. They're part of a broader agenda rather than responsive to specific problems in specific areas. This has been a record-shattering year for voting restrictions, according to the Brennan Center, which states 
seem to have the most restrictive new laws? Well, obviously, Texas, Georgia early on passed a very restrictive law, which I think is being challenged in court. I think Iowa revised its laws to be more restrictive. And again, uh, the ones that I follow most closely are the ones that are targeting local officials. So I know that Iowa did that. Um, I think uh, those are the states that I'm most familiar with, Uh, but I don't think they're alone. And I'm not sure it's done yet. Um, Yeah, I mean, the legislatures, maybe most of what they're done, but they may come back in the fall or even uh, in January. Because uh, the next major elections are going to be in obviously next November, so um, you know I think um, something like uh, a dozen and dozen and a half states have enacted uh, restrictive laws. I think I, I think I last time I saw it was 18, um, but um, I think the states with the strongest restrictions uh, would be Texas, Georgia, Iowa, maybe Florida. Um, uh, other restrictions have passed in uh, Arkansas and Montana. Um, and they have many, many of them are focused on uh, absentee voting, vote by mail, early voting, and some of them are designed to pull back on local officials who, who in the last election, uh, adopted new um, adopted innovations designed to make it easier uh, for people to vote. So now, are there two voting rights bills in Congress right now? I think there are. One is designed to be more narrowly targeted, the John Lewis one, and the other is the broader one that's designed. Uh, I think the John Lewis one is is, is more of a so-called Voting Rights Act uh, restoration one, designed really to get around the, the Supreme Court decisions that cut back on the Voting Rights Act. And I think the other one is the, the For the People Act, or maybe the remains of the For the People Act, which deal with um, a lot of uh, other issues. But to go back to the new laws for a second, I just think in terms of their common themes are uh, restricting the availability or making it harder to vote by mail, uh, making it harder to for early voting, um, restricting the availability of things like drop boxes. They really have a kind of theme, uh, making it harder, making uh, prohibiting uh, providing snacks and water to voters waiting online. Um, they really do have um, they have common themes. I think, increasing voter ID requirements. Do you think that having a federal voting rights law is the only way to cure these problems, or can it be done on a state-by-state basis with lawsuits? Frankly, I think the main way to do it would be a new federal law. One way, of course, would be to change the politics of these states and to change who's in the legislatures and and who the governors are. That's harder, but that would be long-term the most important. There may be some possible state law challenges, some state constitutions are more protective of voting rights than the federal constitution, and it's conceivable that in some states that might happen. But the main way to do it, I think, would be federal laws. The federal laws are largely going to protect the right to vote in federal elections. But since most state elections occur at the same time as federal elections, they would inevitably pick up and protect voting in state elections, too. Thanks for being on the show, Rich. That's Professor Richard Brafalt of Columbia Law School. Bill Barr served as the 77th U.S. Attorney General in the administration of President George H.W. Bush and the 85th U.S. Attorney General in the administration of President Donald Trump. It was Barr's second tenure as Attorney General that was so controversial, from his treatment of the Mueller report to his intervention in the sentencing of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. Former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig has written about Barr's tenure as Attorney General under Trump. 
His book is entitled Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. And he joins me now. So first of all, why do you think that Bill Barr sought out the attorney general's role for a second time and under former President Trump? Yeah, that is a great question. So Bill Barr was one of two people in our country's history who ever served as United States Attorney General twice, and he did it about 25 years apart. He was George H.W. Uh, Bush's Attorney General from 91 till early 93, and then about uh, a quarter of a century later came in under Donald Trump. Why would he do it again? So I, I posit a couple things in the book. Number one, Look, the man loved power. He sought power, being the United States Attorney General, carries unthinkable power. Um, Number two is he had a very strong legal agenda. Bill Barr um, has long been a member of the Federalist Society, um, and Bill Barr himself has even more extreme views of the way our government should be set up, that the president should essentially be all-powerful. Now, I argue in the book that Bill Barr took that way too far beyond the scope of our laws and our Constitution to a dangerous extent to protect Donald Trump. And then lastly, one of the things we discovered in putting the book together is Bill Barr really is a religious zealot, an extremist. And I don't mean, I don't fault him in any respect for being a religious person. But what I do criticize is that he brought to uh, government the view that all of our laws should be based on what he calls God's law, and that Christianity is sort of the supreme moral rules for governing society. He, he wrote about that and spoke about that extensively, and he tried to impose that through his job as attorney general. During his confirmation hearings, did he fool people? Did he tell the truth? He, uh, he definitely soft-pedaled what he had done. The big issue at Bill Barr's confirmation hearing is that he had written a memo a few months before this when it was clear that the AG's job was about to become open because Donald Trump was by this point openly berating Jeff Sessions, who was his attorney general, over the Mueller investigation. Now, Bill Barr, on his own, no one asked him, unsolicited, wrote this 20-page memo explaining why Mueller's investigation was, and I quote Bill Barr here, fatally misconceived. And then Bill Barr went out and did media and said that Mueller's investigation was, and again, I quote Bill Barr, asinine. So he's obviously already made a decision about what he's going to do with this case. He's obviously prejudged this case conclusively. And so at his confirmation hearing, he was drilled about that. And he tried to weasel around it and say, well, I would, of course, evaluate the facts impartially when I take office. And I only express my opinion on a very narrow question of law, which, of course, was the exact question at the heart of the Mueller investigation. And as a result, virtually every Democrat opposed Bill Barr, but the Republicans held the White House and the the Senate at the time. And he got through on the strength of a party line vote. And then when he got into office, he did exactly what he had forecasted he would do. And he declared with sort of a wave of the hand in conclusory fashion, nope, nothing to see here, Trump no obstruction of justice move along. And I think he was both dishonest and and incorrect in in drawing that conclusion. And explain what he did during the Mueller investigation so that it would come to that conclusion. Yeah. So Bill Barr's sort of original sin was this. He was essentially the first person outside of Mueller's team to receive the Mueller report. He got it on a Friday, March 22nd of uh, of 2019. And then two days later on a Sunday, he didn't even take a weekend, He declared that this 448-page single-space report from Mueller, I'm doubtful he even would have had a chance to read it in that time, never mind to digest it and reach a thorough conclusion. Barr just came out and declared no obstruction of justice, and he completely distorted the findings in the report. He issued a four-page letter, Bill Barr did, 
that gave basically all the good stuff for Donald Trump and left out all the bad stuff. Um, and, you know, it, it's been – look, don't, don't take it from me. Multiple federal judges have said that Bill Barr uh, was dishonest in that letter. Robert Mueller himself wrote a letter to Bill Barr complaining that Bill Barr had mischaracterized the report. The problem was first impressions are so powerful, and the first thing we in the public and Congress ever heard about the Mueller report officially was Bill Barr's misleading, dishonest four-page letter. And here's what's especially deceitful by Bill Barr. He held on to the actual Mueller report. He refused to release it for 27 more days. He claimed he was doing redactions, which I've done. There's no way it took 27 days, and, and a federal judge later found that he that, that was a, a pretext. But during that basically one month, Bill Barr's false version of the report had the stage to itself. And Donald Trump and all of his supporters declared victory, game over, walked away. And by the time the Mueller report came out a month later, it was too late to really reverse public perception. So do you think that he was doing this because he truly believes in the concept of the unitary executive? I think, yes. I think there was two reasons, and, and they're related. First, I do believe that Bill Barr, and it's not even a question of believing, he has said that he believes that the president not only is the most powerful person in the executive branch, but is the executive branch. And in Bill Barr's view, therefore, how could the Justice Department, which is part of the executive branch, charge the president, who is the executive branch? So Barr has written and and spoken about that sort of, I believe, unsupportable, unsustainable view of the law and constitutionality. And I think Barr, look, he's also a pragmatist, and and he understood that Donald Trump was his meal ticket. Donald Trump was his ticket to power. And to come into office and immediately say, you know, look, this report came out as very damaging for the president and Congress ought to consider impeachment and we ought to consider indicting him when he's out of office, uh, given DOJ policy that prevented indicting a sitting president. That would have done enormous political damage to Donald Trump. And Bill Barr repeatedly uh, bent his principles, bent the facts the law to protect Donald Trump. A theme through your book is that Bill Barr was never a prosecutor in the sense that he never tried a case himself, and that that sort of affected the way he executed his role as attorney general. Explain why you think it's so important that someone who's at the top making broad decisions should have had trial experience. One of the main issues that Bill Barr had throughout his time as AG was, as you said, he never tried a case. And I think that really hampered him because as a result, he never learned, he never internalized, he never appreciated all of the vital lessons that you learn when you do try cases, as I did. Uh, the, The sanctity of the courtroom, of telling the truth. I mean, it's so fundamental, but it was you know, it embedded in me so deeply that you never exaggerate, you never twist the facts, you always own up. Even when something's bad, you own up and you deal with it. Um, the stakes, the respect for law, respect for the process, respect for defendants, respect for victims, um, just the idea that you don't undercut your colleagues, uh, certainly not publicly. You know, the idea that if you have any potential conflict of interest, you get yourself off the case because otherwise it's going to undermine public confidence. All of those things are lessons that I learned the hard way, and I talk about a lot of the stories that I have from when I was a prosecutor, often involving me messing things up or getting yelled at by a judge or something like that. But Bill Barr never never had those experiences. I'm not saying that as a result he was incapable entirely of being a good attorney general. There have been AGs in the past who had 
no trial experience who, who were widely re- respected, Edward Levy being one. And there were AGs who had trial experience who were widely regarded as being disasters, Jeff Sessions being one. But I think that was one important factor that really caused Bill Barr to do a disservice as attorney general to the American public. What I liked about your book is you weave in stories about your time as a prosecutor with your critique of Bill Barr. I included those stories in the book for a couple of reasons. One, on just a, a, a basic level, I think they're, they're fun and interesting and fascinating. People want to know what's it really like to be a prosecutor at the SDNY, right? What, what happens behind closed doors? What, what's it like when prosecutors get together and have lunch? What do they talk about? Also, what's it like in the well of the courtroom? What's it like when a judge is bearing down on you? What's it like when your witness is collapsing before he's about to take the stand, having a breakdown? And I tell those stories because I think it's interesting, but also because each one of those stories draws out and I think brings to life one of the principles that I talk about. I call it the prosecutor's code. One of those lessons that you learn only through sort of hard-fought experience. And then I relate it to one of the many scandals in Bill Barr's tenure, um, how he, you know, had he learned this lesson the way I did, maybe he wouldn't have gone down this road. Maybe he wouldn't have lied the way he did. Maybe he wouldn't have, um, you know, played politics the way he did. So that's why I, that's the way I try to blend in those stories throughout throughout the book. One incident, you talk about Michael Flynn, the former national security advisor, and that was so strange. What happened there? Why do you think he decided not to plead guilty after he had pleaded guilty twice in court? Well, I think what happened from Bill Barr's perspective, I can reduce to one word, which is politics. So Michael Flynn pled guilty not once but twice because of a strange procedural hiccup. And he cooperated. Let's not forget, he cooperated for a long time with Mueller's office successfully. Mueller's office put in letters to the judge saying his cooperation has been productive and is ongoing. And then Michael Flynn, as you say, got cold feet and he suddenly decided, I'm out. And that caused a breakdown um, in the case. Now, when he did that, Michael Flynn would ordinarily have been exposing himself to jail time. The worst thing you can do as a defendant is to start cooperating and plead guilty and then to change your mind. It's too late. However, however, Bill Barr then rode to the rescue and took the absolutely unprecedented step of arguing to a judge to throw out Michael Flynn's own guilty plea, the conviction that Bill Barr's own Justice Department had come up with. And, and I argue in the book, look, there, there's only two possibilities here. Either Michael Flynn just sort of lost it, lost his mind, has become irrational. You know, he's, he's doing things around this Q organization. He said things that are, you know, out of their talking points. Maybe the guy just lost it. But maybe he's acting out of self-interest. And he was, if he was acting out of self-interest, then somebody would have, he would have had to have had some confidence that he would be rescued, either by the president through a pardon, which did end up eventually happening later, and or by some other means. And that's exactly what happened. DOJ came in, Bill Barr handled, oversaw tens of thousands of cases in his time as attorney general. He only ever came to the rescue of somebody in Michael Flynn's position once. That was for Michael Flynn. There's no way to ignore that that's political. Another very strange thing that happened was what you call in your book the SDNY takeover, which was Bill Barr saying that the U.S. attorney from Manhattan was resigning, and then the U.S. attorney from Manhattan, Jeffrey Berman, saying, no, I'm not resigning. Well, this is another example of Bill Barr lying to the public. Bill Barr came out, it was late on a Friday night, uh, a few months before the election in 2020, I think it was June, and Bill Barr announced that 
Jeffrey Berman, the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, where I used to work. I don't know Berman. I never met him or worked under him. But Bill Barr announced Jeffrey Berman will be stepping down. And Jeffrey Berman, an hour or two later, publicly said, no, I'm not. I don't know what he's talking about. So that's just a lie. Why? Because the SDNY has so many powerful cases, so many cases that could have damaged Donald Trump. And remember, we're down the stretch of the 2020 election at this point. And Bill Barr felt that he could no longer control Jeffrey Berman, which, by the way, is as it should be. The Southern District, where I worked, is famously independent. Lawyers say it's the, quote, sovereign district of New York. A little, I guess, lawyer joke talking about how the Southern District has sort of unequaled power and unequaled independence. And at that moment, there were so many cases pending in front of the SDNY that could have damaged Trump. The investigation of Rudy Giuliani, an investigation into Hawk Bank, a powerful Turkish bank, which had ties to the administration. Um, you know, the, the continuing investigation of not just Jeffrey Epstein, but his Confederates, including Shalane Maxwell. Um, there was a whole litany of cases in, that the FDNY was handling. And it's become clear now that Barr and Trump, and this has been confirmed, by the way, by, by more recent reporting, that Barr and Trump didn't want to take that risk of Berman doing something that might harm Trump politically. And so they took the really unusual step of firing their own U.S. attorney. Berman was chosen by Donald Trump, appointed by Donald Trump, um, firing their own U.S. attorney really just a few months before the election. There's no modern equivalent of that happening. So now we have Attorney General Merrick Garland, who has all the background that you would want an attorney general. He was a prosecutor. He was on the front line. He was a supervisor. He handled huge cases. Does it seem as if he's letting some of the abuses of the Justice Department under Bill Barr go unaddressed, unchallenged? It does. Uh, And I've been critical of Merrick Garland in that respect. I'll I'll give you one example. Um, Bill Barr decided to use the Justice Department to defend Donald Trump in the lawsuit brought by E. Jean Carroll. This is the writer who alleged that Donald Trump had raped her in a department store in New York City in the 1990s. Donald Trump then viciously lashed out at her, called her a liar, said she's, and I quote Donald Trump, not my type. Um, and, and, and E. Jean Carroll sued Donald Trump for defamation. Bill Barr made the determination that, well, Donald Trump's comments that he made about E. Jean Carroll were within the scope of his official duties, which is a ridiculous decision. Therefore, DOJ will represent him, and therefore, and if that happens, then the case will be thrown out. Now, I said at the time that was wrong by Bill Barr. I said it was politically motivated and legally wrong. And a federal judge for the SDNY, uh, Lewis Kaplan, later took the same position. He said, no, that's not within the president's job. You can't do that. Bill Barr's uh, DOJ then appealed. Now, Merrick Garland takes over, and I thought it was an easy call. Merrick Garland should have said, no, we're going to drop this case. We're not defending the president. But Merrick Garland actually said, no, we're going to continue this appeal. Um, which I think is wrong as a matter of law. And we've seen this for Merrick Garland in other situations. And I think Merrick Garland has been too timid as attorney general. I think he has come into the job, and it seems that his calculus is, will this move be perceived as a shot across the bow against Bill Barr, against Donald Trump, or against the prior administration? If so, I will do the opposite. And I argue that if you're doing that, if that's the way you're making your decisions, then you are playing politics and you're not doing your job as a prosecutor and standing up and making strong, independent judgments. So, um, look, there are other things that Merrick Garland has, has done better than Bill Barr. He's nowhere near as corrupt as Bill Barr. He's not been dishonest with the American public as Bill Barr. But I do think Merrick Garland needs to be stronger. You have the book out and now you're starting a podcast. Tell us about that. <laughs> yep, this is brand new. It's called Up Against the Mob. It is uh, 
war stories, so to speak, from my days as a mob prosecutor with the Southern District of New York. You may, may not know it from just seeing me on air, but I was the chief uh, co-chief of the organized crime unit. I prosecuted over 100 actual mobsters, bosses, captains on down. Um, and this podcast is sort of that experience through me and other people who were in it. I interview a former mobster who became a cooperator. I interview a well-known defense lawyer. I interview an FBI agent who went undercover, a psychologist who talks about the psychology behind the mob. So uh, we have a lot of fun with it. I think people will love it. If you really want to, again, get those inside prosecutor SDNY stories and a lot of great inside mob stories, uh, check it out. If, if you, Goodfellas and Sopranos and stuff, those are great, but this is real. So uh, take a listen. Thanks, Ellie. That's former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig. His new book is called Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Brasso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.